0: chapter 12 of the return of alfred by herbert george jenkins this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by anna simon chapter 12 little bilsted goes to church never within the memory of the oldest inhabitant had little Bilstead shown itself so devout as on the sunday morning following the return of mr alfred it had awakened with a delightful feeling of expectancy instinctively its thoughts gravitated towards church for was not Miss Dalfred staying at the vicarage? The return of Miss Dalfred had been regarded by every man and woman in Little Bilstead as a godsend. The women gossiped about it for hour after neglectful hour, and the men yearned for the leaden minutes to pass until they could foregather at the pigeons and inquire of one another, "'Well, Bor, what do you think of it?' The prodigal's denial that he was the prodigal, they seemed to take as a matter of course.' They knew Alfred Warren to be a craven, and what more natural than that he should deny sowing the wind, lest the whirlwind engulf him. Their conversation turned largely upon what would happen when Bob Thurcattle should return, as all knew he inevitably would. As a matter of fact, several had taken the precaution of writing to tell him that Alfred Warren was back. If they had keener eyes than Nemesis, it was but friendly to lend her a helping hand, Never in its history had rumour run through Little Bilstead as it did during the days that followed the return of its own pet black sheep. The wildest stories were circulated and credited. The prodigal had returned armed to the teeth. He had aroused the inmates of the Grange by shooting through the upper windows. He wore a shirt of chainmail under his clothes in view of a possible encounter with Bob Thurkettle. He had obtained the keys of the wine cellar from Willis at the point of the pistol, and the old man had fainted. He had extracted a large sum of money from Miss Marjorie by threatening to burn down the house where she had fainted and Dr. Crane had been sent for. The doctor, in turn, had forbidden him to leave the neighbourhood under penalty of prosecution for threats of violence. It was alleged that Alfred Warren had spent his first night at the vicarage in carousing, drinking neat whisky and shouting ribald songs. Everything was credited, repeated with embellishments and additions, and duly recredited. The one thing that no one thought of believing was that the alleged Alfred Warren was not Alfred Warren at all. That would have strangled the new-born drama at its birth, which the little bilstead would have been emotional suicide. Every man, woman and child in the village vied with one another to catch as many glimpses as possible of the man who had brought into their lives a new and piquant interest host nut of the pigeons sucked a hollow tooth as he laboriously wrote out special orders to the brewer and spirit merchant not even in the palmiest days of alfred warren's scandalous doings had he done such business men from outlying villages tramped into little bilstead after the day's work to hear the latest news and the thirst of little bilstead itself had increased threefold on the night it became known that miss alfred was to play in the cricket match the takings of the pigeons had reached record proportions. Well, what do you think on it together? Nudden inquired at an early stage of the discussion, and it was obvious from the comments that ensued during the next two hours that no one knew exactly what to think of it. Right up to closing time they had delayed it upon this new and mysterious aspect of an old scandal. Dick Marshall give him cosh, that's sure moral, growled Jack Bean. He knew that the advent of Alfred Warren would lose him his place in the team, and he seemed to have echoed the general opinion. No one doubted that, in agreeing to play, Mr. Alfred was making a bid for popularity and rehabilitation. The possibilities of the cricket match were discussed and rediscussed. Two things were accepted as certain that the demon bowling of Marsh, the captain of the opposing team, would produce the tragedy. Whereas, Miss Alfred's notorious inexperience in field sports would supply the comedy. It'll be a fair barney, cried one enthusiast as he rose to go. I'm going to get there early, he added, as he made towards the door, and with a fare you well, departed. On the Saturday night, little Billset had gone to bed praying for a fine day on the morrow. In spite of the memory that in the past, the fine old early English church at Little Bilstead had seldom seen the son and heir of the Grange. It was argued that, as the vicar's guest, he could not very well fail to put in an appearance at least once during the day. The lads of the village arrived early and in force, taking up their position on the top of the grey Elysian-covered wall surrounding the church. They amused themselves by calling one another's attention to the outstanding features, both sartorial and physical, of all who passed, particularly the girls. Never had little Bilstead manifested such devotion as upon that summer Sunday morning. Even old Jacob Gooch, who had not moved outside his house for eighteen months, was seen hobbling along, supported on one side by a stick and on the other by his son, Thomas. The church itself was suggestive of a wedding, as for the most part the worshippers manifested a marked reluctance to enter until the last moment, hopeful of catching a glimpse of Miss Alfred's on his way from the vicarage. They lined the path that led from the porch to the gate, and they collected in a knot at the gate itself. There was but one topic of conversation, the return of the wanderer. Those who were old enough to remember narrated to those who were not some of the more hectic episodes in the life of the prodigal, and the stories lost nothing in the telling. Girls giggled and pretended to be shocked, but they made no effort to remove themselves out of earshot of those who were excavating in Alfred Warren's past. Whilst little Bilstead was awaiting the arrival of the man who had brought so much color into its life, Miss Lipscomb was occupied with her usual Sunday morning efforts to counter the vicar's absent-mindedness. She handed him the manuscript of his sermon, gave him a handkerchief, supplied him with a list of hymns, lessons, and psalms, in short, provided him with all he was likely to require. The fact that he now made very few mistakes in the conduct of divine service was entirely due to his fear of Miss Lipscomb. She had read through the sermon very carefully, to see that there was nothing in it suggestive of the return of prodigals. The vicar's original idea had been to preach a sermon upon the parable itself, but this Miss Lipscomb had resolutely vetoed. There had been sufficient scandal about Alfred Warren, without adding to it from the pulpit, had been her view, and her brother reluctantly relinquished the idea. The vicar went on first, as was his wont, followed a few minutes later by Miss Lipscomb and Smith. As they were seen approaching the gate, a hush fell upon the crowd of expectant villagers. As the two passed between the double line of eager eyes, there was much cap-touching and nodding to Miss Lipscomb, with an occasional, "'Morning, Miss Alfred!' for the prodigal. As they entered the church, the crowd followed, and that morning many little bestellian listened to the sonorous English of King Edward VI's prayer-book for the first time for years.' When the vicar ascended the pulpit steps there was a hush of expectancy everyone thought that his sermon would refer to the return of the wanderer and when he announced his text as the parable of the widow's cruise it was obvious that all were disappointed prodigals had nothing to do with widow's cruises at least they ought not to thought little bilstead in spite of the careful coaching he had undergone at the hands of his sister The vicar managed to link up the widow's cruise of plenty with the sinner that repenteth, and went on to make a passing reference to The dear friend who is back in her midst, after years of wandering, to be welcomed as a brother, and loved as a dutiful son. Smith felt every eye turned upon him, and he could see from the lines of Miss Lipscomb's mouth that she was annoyed. During the offertory there was a general gathering together of possessions as one being the congregation had made up its mind to slip out quietly directly the service was over in the hope of getting another glimpse of alfred warren as he left the church the amen which followed the vicar's benediction pronounced from the altar might have been an alarm of fire from the effect it had upon the congregation the slipping out quietly degenerated into something bordering on a stampede each discovered that his or her own particular little scheme for getting into the churchyard quickly was not so original as had been thought, and a feeling of irritation seemed to spread over the whole congregation. Toes were trodden on, elbows were thrust into sensitive parts of anatomies, and there was much pushing and crushing. "'They seem to be in a hurry to get out,' murmured Smith to Miss Lipscomb. "'It's you,' she said, and there was a grimness in the words which caused him to glance at her curiously. "'Wait until they've gone!' "'And she resumed her seat. "'That morning the casualties were widespread. "'Miss Jell had the stick of her parasol broken. "'Colonel Enderby had said damn in the centre ale "'because somebody had momentarily taken rest upon his most sensitive corn. "'Mrs. Crane had her black-and-white poplin skirt torn out of the gathers, "'whilst Mrs. Truspert Green had swallowed a small acid drop. "'With her acid drops were indissolubly associated with religion,' She always joined in the singing. Miss Marshall lost her glasses, and Mr. Marshall lost his temper because, in stooping to recover them, he had detached from a certain garment two buttons upon which much responsibility rested. A worse fate befell Mrs. Spellman. A careless toe had caught her on the calf of her left leg and laddered her stocking in a way that seemed almost indelicate. During most of the way home her head was over her left shoulder as she endeavoured to obtain a glimpse of what a wag who knew her had once described as the fettered calf. In the churchyard the conversation was fairly equally divided between Alfred Warren and the ill manners of those who pushed and crushed to escape from God's edifice, as Mrs. Trespert Green expressed it. She was wondering if acid drops, inadvertently swallowed, caused appendicitis. As neither Miss Lipscomb nor Smith put in an appearance, the various units reluctantly drifted away. They had, in fact, left by the vestry door with the vicar, and had taken another road to the vicarage. It was not, however, until an hour later that the churchyard was entirely clear. That day many of the inhabitants of Little Bilstead had a half-cold Sunday dinner, but that was to them as nothing. They had seen a real prodigal, and it was worth it during the afternoon the memory of alfred warren was yet in the minds of many locked in her bedroom miss jell with the aid of a tube of secotine, was endeavouring to mend the handle of her parasol mr marshall was standing in an awkward position whilst his daughter brought up to their full compliment the number of his buttons colonel enderby was bathing his left foot in warm water and hindustani oaths whilst mrs crane was regathering her skirt and all were looking forward to the morrow which they instinctively felt would be productive of dramatic developments. The next two days Smith spent, in keen enjoyment, of the almost cloistral quiet of life at the vicarage. The vicar he found conversationally insolvent, except upon the subject nearest to his heart, the life of the ancients. Having no desire to expose the holes and patches in his own classical toga, Smith avoided any effort to open up an obvious avenue to the scholarly cleric's heart whilst smith was absorbing the atmosphere of peace that pervaded the vicarage garden the village was seething with excitement the cricket match was only hours away and little bilstead's own particular black sheep was to play the farmers swore that there was nothing being done as a matter of fact there was a great deal being done in the way of scandal and reminiscence never had the gregarious instinct been more manifest in little bilstead It was not to be expected that, in the face of such dramatic happenings, men or women could be expected to work apart when they were almost bursting to convey to one another some wave of recollection that had just undulated into their sluggish brains. Phyllis, whose place was in the dairy, Danger, would be found by her master in the stables, where Thomas was attending to the horses, or that their job Dale, who by right should have been carting turnips, would be discovered in the kitchen, telling Mary what... They do say in the village, and what they did say the night before at the Pigeons. Tom Bassingthwaite, the postman, carried from house to house the latest rumours, picking up additional tidbits as he went. By the time he reached the end of his round, his voice had become a mere croak. He was also, as he confessed to himself, inclined to squiffiness, for the news was good and was well paid for, and more than one homestead in the neighbourhood was noted for the strength and potency of its home brew. In the meantime, his sister, Martha Bessingthwaite, who officially was the postmistress, sold stamps as she had never sold stamps before. She was deaf and placid, her deafness being exaggerated that it might serve officially for defensive purposes. No armor, however, could resist the penetrating power of the events of the past few days, and Martha Bessingthwaite surprised many of her customers by the amount she knew and the quickness with which she picked up each new detail of importance. In Little Bilstead, the post-office was the centre of information. What Don Bussingthwaite did not know about local affairs need worry no one. His lateness in returning from his morning round on the Monday following the return of Alfred Warren constituted a serious grievance to the village. Colonel Enderby, who had made three separate visits to the post-office at the cost of three separate twopenny stamps, announced his intention of reporting the circumstance to the postmaster-general. Miss Jell had called twice once for a packet of postcards, which he really required, and once to refer to the post office guide for information about the South American mails, which he did not require. Mr Marshall had loitered about the village since an unusually early breakfast, but even he had been anticipated by Mrs. Spellman, whom nothing could keep away, not even another accident to Prinny's tail. All were hoping for a further glimpse of the prodigal himself, but Smith found the vicarage garden infinitely more to his taste than supplying material for the village gossips several times he strolled the short distance to the grange gates in the hope of catching a glimpse of marjorie but without success on one occasion he encountered the choleric colonel enderby whom he recognized from eric's description the colonel approached like a motor-car burning bad petrol puffing and snorting and producing strange noises from within As he passed, he glared at Smith, as if he expected him to wither away under the intensity of his hate. Ten minutes later, Old End, as Eric called him, was back in the village, with the latest news but little breath, and promptly became the centre of an excited group of scandal-seekers. That afternoon, social little bilstead found it impossible to take its tea alone, and repeated the episode of Taffy's house, with however this difference that there was no discoverable larceny. The Miss Jells called upon Mrs. Truspert Green, who had just gone to call upon Mrs. Spellman, who was under way to see Mrs. Crane. The doctor's wife, however, was halfway to the Cedars before she encountered the marshals who were bound for Colonel Enderby's, who was actually ringing the marshals' bell at the moment of the encounter. Everybody had selected a cross-country route, so as not to be seen by prying eyes. The result was that those who took tea at all that afternoon took it late and in their own homes. In consequence, there was a general wave of acute disappointment, and the prodigal's stock fell several more points at the pigeon's. John Nutt rubbed his hands each night. the discussion seemed to wax hotter, and in consequence, thirsts became greater. The cricket match was dwarfed by the greater event of Miss Alfred's return as the night progressed. However, the fierceness of the discussion subsided somewhat, and when the time came for the final shuffling of feet. Preluding the closing of John Nutt's hospitable doors for the night, some rustic philosopher would announce that, when Bob Thurkettle returned, the prodigal would cop it a rumen, and, with a chorus of acquiescing grunts or growls, each would go his way, trusting that, when the epic encounter took place, fate would so arrange it that he should be somewhere in the vicinity. Eric had constituted himself a sort of mercury. He ran back and forth to the vicarage, like a puppy on the first day of spring. He was invariably in a hurry, and always brought the latest account of what was taking place in the village. He did not, however, make any mention of an encounter he had with Postle, the ensuing cross-examination, or of the fact that he had striven to convince the village constable that the fatal shot which had caught the check-suited stranger whilst in a stooping position had been fired by Smith. On the Tuesday Smith decided to take a stroll towards the village to see how things were shaping he had not proceeded more than a few hundred yards down the road when he came suddenly upon miss mary jell at the sight of him she turned and literally ran for the shelter of mrs bellman's garden gate undaunted by this rather startling manifestation of his unpopularity smith had continued on his way the hour however was just before social little bilstead lunched, and all had returned to the seclusion of their own roofs The antagonism of the villagers themselves, however, was marked by a bold expressionless stare from the few women he encountered, a scowl from the still fewer men, and by three stones and two cries about Bob Thurkettle's mother from the children. Returning to the vicarage, Smith told Miss Lipscomb of his experience. Grim-lipped and steely of eye, she had advised him to keep away from the village, at least for a day or two. He knew the advice had less connection with the recent demonstration than the dramatic possibilities likely to result from the return of Bob Thurkettle. "'I'm afraid,' she said at dinner that evening, "'I shall have to hold you prisoner for a few days.' And there was a smile in her eyes, and that queer little fluttering at the corners of her firm mouth as she spoke. "'I'm an old woman,' she continued, "'and I like young society.' and Smith had assured her that he asked nothing better than the hospitality of the vicarage. For James Smith, he had concluded, and not Alfred Warren. Thank you, Mr. James Smith, was Miss Lipscomb's dry retort. End of chapter 12